All right, well, good morning. It's really a delight to see you again here. Uh, as you know, we're working through, again, our vision series for the year 2022. And I mentioned this before. It's really fun to go back through this because the, 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 the texts are the same and the content is essentially the same. But it's really fun to watch how time changes how we interact with these things. And so at the beginning of each year, Molly's shaking her head. You will have remembered this maybe four or five times through. It's different every time. It's more like jazz than like classical music. There's no predictability here about how we're going to go through this. And what's really fun for me is to look back through these texts as a community that is morphing and changing. And I just want you to write this down somewhere in your mind. If your faith community isn't adapting and changing, you might need to get off at the next stop because anything that promises to be static and it's going to be that way forever is not going to account for what happens to the world with a thing like glo a global pandemic or the different things that we've come through. So we're growing people, and so our, our values and our vision are morphing and, and, and changing over time. And that's been really fun for me to watch as we go back through this. So, so far, just to go back to reiterate, we began with a discussion the opening Sunday of January around our interfaith ecumenical posture, why we willingly play ball with all in the, in the faith space. We talked then about our value for corporate worship, why I think it still matters that we do this. Then we looked at social justice and, and the way we see it woven together with the gospel. In fact, I would just tell you one won't thrive without the other. If it doesn't work itself out and change society, it's nothing but just another way to think. And then, of course, last week from the very cold boardwalk on, in East Austin, south of the water, you heard uh, my conversation around genuine and biblical community. Now, the Say What You Need to Say song was supposed to go with that sermon, but I couldn't get John Mayer to come to the boardwalk, and Mark was booked. In fact, I texted Lamar, because this is how you text, right? Cat on keyboard. I, I, te I texted Lamar um, and said, hey, well, let's do the John Mayer song. And he's like, well, there's no church on Sunday. I'm like, yeah, I should probably check with the pastor next time. I should have known that. So that kind of goes with last week. So say what you need to say. Um, and, and then, of course, the, the, the essence of, of community, as I understand it, is it's hard work, and you have to show up and speak up, right? And so as we see a community that grows together and emerges from what's, what, you know, this calamity that we're surviving, it's going to need to happen around a commitment. You don't find community. You make it. That's the, that's the reveal. Okay. So that brings us up to today. Our, sub, our, our role today, or our subject today, is going to be the role of biblical teaching in our church, in our faith community. And our statement reads this way, and you can find it online. We see a church that values biblical teaching. We believe that the good news found in the scriptures is relevant and transcends time and culture. Very, very brief to the point. So today we're going to discuss the truth about the Bible and why it matters. And hopefully if we do this right, this might lighten your load because I'm afraid many of us carry heavy, heavy weight by the, the way the text has been abused to make us feel small and dark and dirty in the past. And so hopefully we can bring some peace to some inner turmoil if we have this conversation correctly. Now, I've spent all but four years of my 49-year life with an earshot of this book. My dad was a preacher. I grew up in that household. The rigor of what to do with this text was the context of my upbringing. I don't remember a day of my life where I wasn't thinking about this. This book that we call the Bible sits on my shoulder. It, it lo looks a little bit like Salty. You guys remember those songs from the 80s? <laughs> like a little blue book, you know, the word of God kind of a thing. It sits on my shoulder and it asks me the most pestering questions. Some of these will feel familiar. These are the questions that the text is always asking me. Am I living according to the wisdom found in it? Am I reading it correctly? Am I becoming the kind of person who li lives with grace and love in a modern world? Is it working itself out into action? Have I found the good news buried in the context, buried in the text itself? Am I reading it just to confirm what I already think? Those are the questions I ask. Some of you are familiar with those. Those live inside your mind too. 
I have one layer to add to that. I don't just ask it for myself. I'm asking it for you. Are we the kind of people who are reading this correctly? Are we looking for the wisdom? Are we finding it? So this is the inner narratives that go on in my mind all the time. Here's what I know. Whatever value we ascribe together to this ancient, this often ambiguous, this strangely diverse book, whatever value we add to it will have a lot to do with the kind of people we, come to, we, we become together. It's going to inform everything that happens downstream. So, how important is this compilation of ancient writings that we call the Bible? And that's a community question. That's not a question for the text itself, and that matters. You see, Christians are famous for letting the Bible argue for its own authority. <laughs> I don't need to tell you why that's a weak logical argument. We're pretty smart people around here. You just don't read a book that's only endorsed and the foreword is written by the guy who wrote the book and then self-published it. You know what I'm saying. There used to be a restaurant on Sanibel Island back in the 1980s. The Friels know where I'm talking about. I don't know if you guys were going in the 80s, but I was living there in the 80s. And on the marquee out on Sandcat Boulevard, it said, best burger on the islands, in quotation marks. So being the inquisitive little 14-year-old that I was, I walk in there one day and I said, say, who rated you the best burger on the islands? And after pressing the waiter for a moment, he says, well, well we did. I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's real rigorous. You get my point. If all we can say about the Bible is that it matters because the Bible says so, then we haven't said very much. We have to do better work than that. Anyway, let's turn our thoughts to the scripture. This is the go-to scripture that people of faith have used forever. And of course, it's written by Paul. This is where they hang their hat to say how the Bible is or isn't authoritative. And so Paul writes in a letter he wrote to a young protege named Timothy, 2 Timothy, uh, 2 Tim Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and it reads this way. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Sounds so positive, doesn't it? And for training in righteousness. So that everyone who belongs to God, which is everyone, we know this to be true, uh, may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Now, a few thoughts about that text. Paul was referring to the Old Testament here when he says all Scripture. He was referring to the Scripture that he would have understood to be the writings of Moses, the, to uh, Moses, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He wasn't talking about what he was writing to Timothy, and that's going to matter. As far as I know, in all the time I've studied this book, uh, there is... I have never found evidence that anywhere inside this book that the mortal men who wrote these words had any sense that we would look through history and say, God said what they wrote back and forth to one another. There's no internal evidence that has a built-in awareness that they're writing the words of God. It would take centuries to determine that these writings were somehow different than the rest, that they were sacred. You know, for, uh, there were many gospels written about the life of Jesus, not just the four. You know this, right? It would take centuries to prove for the church to gather around and say, this is different. The authors had no idea that we would be looking over their shoulders all these millennia later, assuming that it was God moving the quill. This awareness took time to evolve. Paul wasn't including his thoughts in the category of scriptures that he says are all God-breathed. And that word God-breathed is important. Paul is stating that the Old Testament books attributed to Moses were full of the life of God. That's a dynamic thing. That's not just words. They were full of the life of God, much like human beings are bearing the literal breath of the divine source in their nostrils. He uses the same word. These were breathed into existence like, like people were breathed into existence. And that may not seem like that big of a distinction, but it'll matter. You see, people are known to be dynamic and evolving, growing, unfolding, becoming, growing, dying, being reborn, uh, and adapting as they encounter an ever-unfolding God. This is the same claim that Paul is making here of the scriptures, which is already foreign to most of us. 
Remember that. It's a great vaccination against biblical literalism, which will rear its head later in our story. Finally, the point he makes here very briefly in these two verses. There's an essential end game, or there's a goal in this whole idea of Scripture. According to Paul in verse 17, there's a point to this. And what is it? The point of all revelation is to supply proficiency and equipping, literally to build people's resistance up for every good work. Now, not later, but now. Not to make them smart or theologically correct, not to get them to heaven, but to prepare them to do the work of God in the earth now. So, biblical literalists, which is just a way of saying people who claim that they, that they ascribe the, the same value to every verse and every chapter of every book, biblical literalists and fundamentalists who are the people who say everyone's wrong but them, some of you are familiar with that, they use this verse in Paul's letters to claim that the Bible was aware of itself and that it was infallible and that it was in, inerrant. And those are two very, very brand new concepts dating back less than, a thousand, less than 100 years each. And you just need to understand that in the longevity of biblical interpretation, 100 years is the snap of a fingers. Infallibility and inerrancy. I wonder if you've heard those terms. Those are modern ideas. They're not found in the text anywhere. These are ideas that ignore how wisdom literature actually works, if I'm honest. These are mostly American, mostly fear-based, almost entirely ideas born in response to the writings and the, think and the theories of Charles Darwin in the middle of the last century. You can't lay brand new ideas over ancient texts and claim that the text was aware of that all those years before. That just is going to be the beginning of a lot of problems. So these stories, this poetry, this historical account of an underdog refugee people on the move, journeying and traveling, learning to understand God, learning to trust God's provision, it's so much more than just infallibility and inerrancy. There's not just facticity and historicity here involved. There's much more than that. You see, it breathes. It moves because it preserves the very growth and evolution of wisdom. These narratives are so much more than just historic accounts. I wonder if those who think they have the highest view of Scripture actually don't end up having it because it's frozen in time, they think. These are dynamic, self-revealing stories of a God who loved everything she ever made. So if judgment or bad teaching or passages taken out of context for the purpose of justifying hate and evil and repression or any other abuse of this collection of ancient and ambiguous and diverse writings, if any of this has ever been used to frighten you or to wound you, you are not alone. Great suffering occurs when this text falls into the hands of unloving people. You see, Christians use the Bible like a handgun. They use it to manipulate and control, to execute their will, to justify their own conclusions, to reinforce their particular tribal identities, and to shame all those who challenge their favorite text within the text. And now, to some degree, I have to be honest, we all have texts within the greater text, do we not? Can we just call that what that is? We all pick and choose, and I would suggest that's the very point. We have to know what to look for inside there, and to deny that we pick and choose the gospel in the text is where the damage begins. Those who claim they do not are not on good footing. Our task, I believe, is to find the gospel buried in the text. Think of it as the treasure in the field. It's the pearl in the oyster. You get my point. Nobody takes every single verse of all of this with equal seriousness. Nobody does. And therefore, I argue strongly that biblical literalists aren't actually even a thing. They just think they are. Nobody does that with this ancient text. But it isn't the Bible that does the damage to people that we love or to ourselves. It's the people who fail to interpret as wisdom literature. 
I'm always amazed that people still find Jesus, even after the pain and the abuse that they've suffered under self-interested interpretations designed to create and consolidate white Eurocentric male power. That's a fun sentence. You might want to go back and hear that one again. You see, the purpose of the Bible is to record, to preserve, to pass down good news. If it's not good news, it's not good, right? It's, it's, it's designed to record, preserve, and pass down good news that God can be located in the material world, that God can be found in human flesh, namely in the man Jesus, but not only in Jesus, in all human flesh. That's the gospel. So this ancient poetry, this tribal nuanced history, these pieces of correspondence and letters written between parties, these bizarre apocalyptic visions of the end of the world all bear witness to the idea that God inhabits the material world, that God is findable. You see, good news is still the point. It must be. It always has been. These words and narratives collected and transcribed and translated and preserved for us are nothing more than ancient cultural artifacts unless they prepare us to be the kind of people that Jesus was. Unless they prepare us to understand the nearness of God to us. Whether you're new to the Bible or you're an old hand at this, like some of us, the question remains, can we still hear the good news of the gospel hidden in these words and ideas? That's the question. And that's all that really matters. Because if we can't, this book falls apart. It becomes a tool we use to claim superior understanding and to establish moral dominance. And we'll use it to prove that we are right and that they are wrong, whoever's doing the interpreting. You know how this goes. And that's the beginning of the end of our understanding of the point of it all. And what's the point? Oh, just to dissolve the, 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 the us-them dichotomy, right? And to fold it all back into God's ever-unfolding love story with all things, not just human things, with all things, nothing less. Now, I used to read the Bible like a young zealot. We all did in those times. That was a very defined uh, chapter of adolescence. I assumed everyone would eventually agree with me if they just read it right long enough like I did. But it's an open heart and it's an open mind, firmly rooted in a faithful, humble, interpretive, curious, and courageous community that best positions a person to understand what this book is all about. Turns out it's not a formal degree in education that makes all that much difference. In the end, this is community literature, written, compiled, preserved, and interpreted by a community, designed to be consumed by a community for edification, as Paul says, and for the equipping of a community to live according to the law of love. It's not about belief or how to get to heaven or sin or hell. It's not about any of those things. It's about how to do the work of love in the material world, which brings us to confront our philosophy of revelation which is just a fancy way of saying how we think about what God has revealed to humankind. Some people, let me just say it, are terrified at the thought that the light we walk in is limited. They're terrified at the thought that the revelation that we have is still unfolding. It's partially moving beneath our feet. The evolution of thinking about God is terrifying and they want to freeze it because it's unsettling. Some want final, but the scripture instead offers flux and flex and flow and slowly changing, accumulating layers like sedimentary rock of our experiences and our learnings about God and truth and life, piling on the thing that came before it, piling on the thing that came before it. That's actually how it works. And so here's the thing. Settled, certain, positive, permanent, airtight, and locked down, once and for all, unchangeable truth is something we all crave. We all crave that, but this text won't allow it, not in part and not in whole. 
all of the wonderful scientific modern ideas we associate with the standard, the standard burden of proof actually run cross-grain to this ancient, ambiguous, diverse text that we've been calling the Word of God since Constantine and a city in Turkey named after him told us to do so in the fourth century. Some of you are beginning to pick up on that little word formulation that I keep using, ancient, ambiguous, and diverse. Those words come from a good friend of ours, Dr. Pete Enns. Actually, time in the first service, I said Dr. Pete Townsend. Trey came up after he says, great stuff. It's not Pete Townsend, it's Pete Enns. Sorry, Pete Townsend. Sorry, Pete Enns. I don't know. That ancient, ambiguous, diverse uh, word formulation comes from the writings of Dr. Pete Enns of Harvard. He writes a trilogy, and if you're into understanding the scriptures, you've got to start with these three books. The first one is The Bible Tells Me So, and then it's The Sin of Certainty, and then it's How the Bible Actually Works. They have shaped my thinking and that of our generation. One day we'll get him to come speak. He's just expensive. But anyway, ancient, ambiguous, and diverse. If I could, if we could just get to the truth though, preacher, just if we could just get to the truth, no interpretation, nothing in between. If we could just get there, then we wouldn't have to do the work of interpretation. That's what we've been told we'd be better off if we could just do that. You see, we wouldn't have to trust ourselves then. We wouldn't have to trust our bodies. We wouldn't have to be active members of a community prayerfully engaging this material to find the gospel hidden within. It would just be simple. Open it, point, and that's where it is. (laughs) If only it wasn't the living, breathing text. We could replace all our questions with concrete answers, finally. We love that. Enneagram ones in the room are like, yes, how do we pay for that upgrade? Where do we spend the money? Because it would eliminate the risk of being wrong. It would eliminate the, the risk of having to grow, which is just another version of, of the dying and rebirth process. But it's impossible. You see, everything is interpreted. And so we interpret as best we can with the lenses that we have at our disposal, which is another way of saying, once we decide what these words meant to the original audience, then we have to bring them across the time and say, what might they mean for us today? That's the work. And that work is never done. But not all interpretations are the same, are they? What makes a good biblical interpretation? How do we know we're on track? How do we know what the rules are? What guides us? Where are the bumpers on the bowling alley? Well, if I had to give you one cardinal rule, it would be this. And hear me clearly. This says everything you need to know about how we see the text. If our biblical interpretation does not harmonize with Jesus, we haven't got it right. There's more work to be done if it doesn't produce Christ-likeness in us. In other words, our biblical theology must submit once and for all underneath our Christology. This is our filter for truth. We've got to go through this to get to it, but whatever we press through here that does not come out looking like Jesus, we've not got it right. Here's how we say it in our new partner class. Well, Jesus, this is what we believe is the purest word of God, uh, our only historical access to him is the Bible. Therefore, it is divinely inspired in its writing, preservation, and application. It's reliable and life-producing when prayerfully studied and applied by a faithful community. It stands above every other thing ever written as a universal invitation by God for all. But we put our Christology above our biblical theology. You see how that works, meaning... If the way we read the Bible, now hear me, ever sanctions or authorizes attitudes or actions or views of God or views of neighbor or views of ourself or postures towards the cosmos itself, if, our, if the Bible, the way we read it, ever sanctions those sorts of things or ways of being in the world that don't harmonize with the life and ministry of Jesus, then we do not have it right. We need to go back to the text and do better work interpreting it. I hope you see what I'm trying to say. You see, Christology is our cosmic understanding of the life and teachings of Jesus, and it is the filter through which all other things must pass to survive. 
Therefore, sexism and racism and justifications of power and empire and institutional violence and the flagrant dismissal of the rights of, of human beings and refugees, these are all the fruit of bad biblical theologies. I hope you know I could take you to chapter and verse where those isms are held up by a, a particular way of looking at the, at the text. But those are not orthodox. They contradict the very witness of Scripture. Those are not acceptable. Why? Because they don't harmonize with the way Jesus was in the world. You want to know who to love? Ask who Jesus loved. That's your, that is how we do textual work here. Our biblical theology is useless, if not dangerous altogether, if it produces anything less than Christ-likeness in us. Which brings up another question. How do we know that our theology harmonizes with Jesus? And there's the mousetrap. You've got to go back through the text. So you see how they interdepend and how access to one goes through the other. So let's get super practical. If we're looking for good news of divine accessibility of God in the material world or the gospel of Jesus, however you want to call that, buried in the Bible, how do we know when we're doing it right? Well, number one, when it makes us humble, which is another way of saying open. We are not the first and we are not the last and we won't be the only ones to believe. We are but a tiny expression of the greater whole. You see, humility is the only tenable posture. If we read the text and become exclusivistic or uneditable or unwilling to adjust, we haven't found the gospel yet. The teachings of Jesus produce humility. They always do. It's an axiom. And humility implies that we know that not, even if we have received a revelation of God, it doesn't mean that ours is the best or the biggest or the final or the most important thing that God ever said. For doing it right, it produces humility. In fact, a humble approach to this text assume, assumes that God is doing all sorts of self-revealing inside and outside of what we have access to. How do we know we're doing it right? When it makes us humble. Also, when it makes us hungry, when it makes us curious, we never stop asking questions. We have to come asking broader questions than we're used to. And I'm not just talking about questions like, did this actually happen? Did a fish really swallow a dude? Can you fit everything on a boat? Those aren't even interesting questions. The questions are, the far more important questions are, why would ancient people write this down? What about this is a new departure on human understanding about what God was doing in the world, you see? It should make us hungry to know more. How does this narrative, this poetry, this history, these visions of the end of the world, how do they push forward a deeper understanding of God and God's movement towards all people? If we're doing it right, it should make us humble, it should make us hungry, and it should also make us one. It should bring us together. We know we're doing our biblical scholarship right when it blurs the lines of privilege, when it implicates one's plight with the other, when it collapses our cultural distinctions, when it forces us into real community. Oh, don't try to do this work completely alone. You'll never get there from here. This stuff was written and preserved so that we could become a new kind of humanity, one with the other, one that we glimpsed in Christ. It's just another way of saying a community bound in love. If we're doing it right, it'll make us one. No matter what we ask of this text, it never stops demanding that we gather to think and question and poke and prod and pull and tear and rethink with different voices and different angles through different experiences to engage the work of interpretation together. It must make us humble. It must make us hungry. and It must make us one. And that sounds really easy, doesn't it? The problem is this material is ancient and ambiguous and diverse. In some ways, it's so far, it's hard to, it's hard to recover. It's easy to lose your way in this text. 
So in summary, truth is revelation. Revelation looks like Jesus in the real world, and one way to get there is by going through the Bible. I know my way. You can follow me. We can get there. But how do we do that when so much of this stuff is weird and old and culturally questionable and nearly impossible to explain and understand? Well, let me tell you three things that you've always known, and here again I'm stealing from the great guitarist Pete Townsend or Pete Enns from Harvard, whichever you prefer. This text is unapologetically ancient. It never pretended to be modern. Some of these ideas simply will not travel across centuries and apply to our world. Many of them shouldn't. Some of these are illegal. If you murder your child for disobeying you, you're in trouble. I'm forced to report you, right? So like, so like some of this stuff is not going to follow us. Much of it was written, or all of it was written by simple agrarian people. Simple men living simple lives in ancient times, and that chronology matters. Never assume that they were writing with us in view. We have to look at the layers as they build. It simply won't bear up against uh, the, the crushing weight of modern scrutiny and the late Western scientific expectations. How could it? This was written to make ancient people understand wisdom and to make them wise by telling them about a God who was always moving towards all people, not just them, about a world that literally embodies the divine unfolding of God. Revelation comes in layers over time. You know this, and I'm not going to go back to a time when women were property and kids should be quiet and you had to have a certain skin color to be a full human being. I'm not going back to that. I'm not going back to a time where the, the convergence of three major rivers was the entire known world, and when that flooded, the whole world flooded. I'm not going back to that. What we have is the best they could imagine given the time. I, would, I told this to somebody after the, the first service. I used to, used to be in the quarry business, and we would have to measure whenever we would blast, because if we would exceed a certain level, we'd be in trouble with the neighbors. And so we would take these snapshots and these micro-readings, and then we would watch the clock, and we would do the blast. Well, just because between 1 o'clock and 1.15 on last Tuesday, this was the reading, doesn't give me the permission to grab that and say, this is all you need to know about how we blast stone at Thornton Quarry. That's senseless. These are snapshots. It's the best we could see for that time. Now, we can understand some things to extrapolate, but that was Tuesday from 1 to 1.15. No, no, Revelation begs the ongoing conversation. I hope you feel the passion with which I'm trying to convey these points. So in summary... Truth is revelation. It looks like Jesus, and one way to get there is through the Bible. It's ancient. It doesn't pretend to be modern. Violent things happen when we assume that it is. Also, these sacred words are ambiguous by design, and this is important. Catch this. So much of the material doesn't seek to resolve our questions. It forces us into the kind of community that has to continuously have the dialogue about what does it mean? Here's an example. Keep the Sabbath holy. Well, what is the Sabbath exactly? Is it sundown? Is it sun up? What does holy mean? Is it just slightly other? It's designed to be ambiguous so that it pulls us in so that as a people we circle up and say, what does it mean now? And then what does it mean now? And then what does it mean now? It's a conversation. It's designed to create community. Ambiguity forces us to lean in and to deliberate as a people. What does it mean for us today is the question that I'm always asking. How do we remain faithful to what God spoke to the ancient Hebrews today in 2022 at 2701 South Lamar? This material is ambiguous precisely because that's what demands us to reimagine and reimagine and reimagine again. And then finally, this collective of, of, of wisdom is intentionally diverse. It doesn't, it doesn't pretend to dissolve things into a single narrative line. Let me ask you this. Did God create man and then out of man's imperfection pull a rib and create a woman? Or did God create male and female in God's image? Well, Genesis 1 says one, Genesis 2 says the other. I'm curious, which one do you think is the authoritative word of God? It's the diversity of the view that expresses something more complete. 
Which is the right eyewitness account of what Jesus did in his ministry? Is it, is it John's? Is it, is it Luke's? Is it Mark's? Is it Matthew's? Might it be Miriam's? Could it possibly be Thomas's? It's supposed to be diverse. On, that's the whole point. I could take, we don't have time, but I could take you to poetry that self-contradicts, you know, answer a fool, then the very next verse, don't answer the fool. I could take you to old historic accounts that argue about different things happening at different times, or we could look at various prophetic imaginations of the afterlife or the gospels themselves. It's diverse on purpose. It's designed to be open on purpose. It's going to require the work of interpretation. That's the point. So this ancient ambiguous text, diverse text, context, will never require anything less than people asking questions about what do we do now with this. It's always growing in that way. You see, the Bible has never been about giving us the right answers. It's always been about inspiring the right questions, about creating the right posture as we do. And so when I say we see a church that believes in biblical teaching, this is what I mean. And I believe it deeply because truth is buried in there somewhere. We have to keep going down until we find it. The greatest revelation we've ever received about God and about ourselves and about our neighbor and about what God wants and about what God is like is found in Jesus. And the way we get there is to go through the text. It's the purpose of all of this. It's how it all works. These writings give us access to that story. And so this story gives birth to truth and to wisdom as we seek it. This collection of stories and parables and apocalyptic dreams is the best the ancient people could do. Oh, but I want to know what are we going to write? What are we going to write? That's the best they could see. What are we going to write? What are we going to write, America in 2022? Given what we know to be false and what we know to be true about gender and sexuality and, and, and ethnicity and race, what are we going to write? You see, you see what I'm after here. It's not just about what Job thought or what David thought or what Paul thought. What do we think? What's South Lamar going to add to it? What are we going to add to it? That's the point. When you can hold it that way, you can't contain it. We'll never know if we've got the last thing it'll say. It'll always keep breathing. It'll always keep giving life. That's the point. That's the posture that I believe we should have as we approach our text. That's what we mean by biblical teaching. Pray with me. You can join me on your feet if you're able. Band, you know your place. I get a little fired up about this text. I may have written about 3,000 words out before I kept these words. Maybe it's just the amount of time I've tried to figure out how not to let it crush things I love and how to find the life in it, but I wonder if we might pray just a simple prayer that it would just be as simple as continue to speak to us, God, even in this text, in every text, in any text, in all the ways you speak. Continue to speak to us that our hearts might be able to fully face the depth of love you have for all of this. In your name we pray.